Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 45, The Crying Boy, A Cursed Painting In September of 1985, a fire destroyed a house in Rotherham, South Yorkshire, England. While the family escaped unscathed, the house, and all that it contained, was consumed by the fire, all, that is, except for a painting. The painting depicted a crying boy, probably somewhere around five years old. The homeowners heard one of the firefighters comment, oh no, not another, upon seeing the painting. Before long, it became public knowledge that a large number of houses containing this painting had burned. The British tabloid The Sun wrote articles on the subject, describing the tendency for buildings in which the prints of the painting were hung to catch fire, fires that left only the painting surviving. The evidence seemed clear. This painting, somehow, caused fires, and as paintings are not known for their arsonist tendencies, this must mean that something supernatural was going on. What's more, while most of these fires occurred at homes and businesses in the UK, others were reported from different parts of the world. The painting, it appeared, was cursed. As more people came forward with similar stories, it became clear that, while the family in Rotherham had all escaped their home, not everyone was so lucky. By some estimates, around 1,000 people died in fires caused by having this painting in their homes. The authorities tried to assert that none of this was due to the painting, but to more mundane sources of fire. But, of course, when offered the chance to hang a print in their homes, fire officials routinely refused to do so. But, as more information became available, it looked to be even worse than simply fires. According to some stories, those who hung the paintings in their homes might not lose their homes to fire, but might instead experience the deaths of family members, including those who did not even live with them. Eventually, the editor of The Sun proposed a solution. People should send their copies of the painting to him, and he would arrange to have them all burned. In the end, around 2,500 copies of the painting were burned in a bonfire in October 1985. That said, the paintings burn but they don't burn easily. Why not? Well, according to some, the boy's tears put out the fire. So why was the painting and its prints cursed? Well, there are a few different explanations given. One thing that is not disputed is that the Crying Boy painting was part of a series of paintings which were all sold as prints through British department stores from the 1950s through the 1970s. All of the paintings in this series depicted young children crying. Some have claimed that several, or even all, of the paintings in this series are cursed, but most people will point to one particular painting which features a close-up of a child's face and shoulders. The child is looking at the viewer and tears are running down his face. This is the infamous Crying Boy. But as this was part of a series, it is not uncommon to see other paintings from the series shown on websites labeled the same way. The painter, who signed his work as G. 
Bragolin, was either Italian or Spanish, depending on who you ask. Some say that he painted the Crying Children series in the 1950s, with the intent that these paintings remind those who bought them of the orphaned children of World War II. Why one would be cursed is unclear, but perhaps the model in the painting was angry, and the curse is his response to the loss of his parents in the war. Another story holds that Bragolin took advantage of the privation that reigned in continental Europe after the war and would find poor children to use as models for his paintings. The story goes that he would demand that they cry before he would provide them with their payment of food and water. Again, why this one painting and not others would be cursed as a result is not clear. Three other stories stand out, though. In one of them, Bragolin was a Spanish painter who was inspired to paint the series by seeing one boy, the one featured in the infamous Crying Boy painting, wandering the town market. The boy had sad, expressive eyes. When Bragolin asked the local priest about the boy, he was told that the boy's name was Don Benillo and that he was an orphan whose parents had died in a fire. However, the priest advised the painter that the boy should be avoided as he was dangerous and was suspected of starting the fire that killed his parents. The priest explained that the boy had been nicknamed Diablo. Bragolin ignored the priest's warning and took Don Benillo in, giving him a home. Bragolin's home and studio soon caught fire and Don Benillo vanished, apparently having tried to kill Bragolin in an arson, just as he had done to his parents. Some years later, a young man died in a car crash and was revealed to be the now 19-year-old Don Benillo. Sometimes, however, you will hear that Don Benillo didn't start the fire, but rather that fire simply started wherever he went, regardless of his actions, leading to him being nicknamed Diablo. And sometimes it is said that Bragolin adopted the boy, yes, but abused him horribly, and that the fire starting in the homes of those who bought prints of the painting is Don Benillo's way of getting revenge on the painter himself, or that the curse that followed the boy now follows his image, regardless of what the boy wanted. Some people, however, have dug deeper into the story and found that Bragolin never existed, but was instead a false name used by the painter who created the Crying Children painting series. And one person, a retired British schoolmaster named George Mallory, found that the painter had been a man named François Seville. Other than the name change, however, George Mallory's story matches the tale I have already related regarding the painting's origins, and it is likely that the story is the origin of that version of the painting's history. But, of course, there is yet another layer. There are those who claim that the spirit of the boy is, in fact, trapped in the painting. The boy's spirit sets fires with the hopes of being set free when the painting burns, which, of course, it never does. How did the spirit get into the painting? Well, some who believe that he's in there will simply say they don't know, while others will cite an occult belief that a portrait painting by its very nature holds a piece of the soul of the subject. Some versions even claim that all of the children painted in the series were orphans who died in a fire at an orphanage, and they start fires in the homes of the purchasers out of anger of their lives being cut short. And, naturally, there are rumors that the artist made a pact with Satan, pledging his soul and allowing his art to be used for evil purposes, though what, precisely, he got out of the deal is unclear, as he didn't rise to fame or fortune from these paintings. While the panic of the 80s has died down, to this day there are houses that burn and leave behind a copy of the Crying Boy painting when the flames have finally burned out. Certainly, there must be something to this story, right?
commentary. As I've often said in the past, my interest is not in debunking stories, but in understanding them. Most of the time, the truth or falsity of a story is irrelevant to the development and social meaning of the story. In some cases, even those developing the story know that it is fiction and that is part of the appeal. But there are times, and this is one of them, where understanding the actual facts behind the story does help us understand how a story develops and why it catches on. One thing up top, while I discuss a specific painting in the series as the Crying Boy painting, some tellings you will come across say that all of the paintings in the series have the same curse. This confusion is, in part, created because one of the Sun articles claimed that there was a fire-starting cursed painting featured a different painting from the series. Now, I will get to discussing the Sun, but I am inclined to think that this is far more a case of the Sun not caring about consistency between stories than the Sun attempting to claim that all of the series paintings were cursed. Most of the tellings I have come across hold that it is one specific painting in the series, but that is not the only way that the story is told. So if you hear that all of the paintings are cursed, or that a few specific paintings are cursed, I didn't miss that in my research. It just isn't the standard form of the tale. Oh, and to muddy the waters further, some of the crying boy paintings upon which fires were blamed weren't even part of this series. They were completely different paintings of different crying children in houses that also happened to catch on fire. Okay, but still, it does look like a lot of house fires occurred and that crying boy paintings, either the specific one that is typically blamed or else others from the series, have been found unburned in the wreckage. This must mean that there is something to the story, right? Well, no, not really. This is probably going to be the most boring part of the episode, but it is necessary to understand the more interesting elements, so stick with me. This is a story easily debunked by a knowledge of materials, psychology, and statistics. Prints of the Crying Children series of paintings sold well through department stores in the UK, and eventually in other parts of the world. As a result, there are, quite simply, a huge number of houses the world over that have prints of paintings from this series hanging in them. In addition, reporting on the curse, primarily in the sun, the tabloid that started the Fuhrer, tended to play fast and loose with the facts and would often lump other paintings under the title of the crying boy. As a result, the specific crying boy paintings were common, homes with paintings of crying children that might be called the crying boy were common, and house fires were not uncommon. So if fires occur, and a large quantity of a specific set of paintings, or paintings that might be similar, are present in buildings that might catch on fire, then you should expect that, out of pure random chance, a large number of the burned buildings should contain paintings that might be the crying boy, or similar enough to the crying boy as to be assumed to be, or reported as, the same painting. Essentially, if house fires occur in a random pattern, but a particular set of elements are common in houses, then you would expect a large proportion of house fires to take place at homes with those common attributes. It's not a curse, it's just math. That, then, brings us to psychology. We tend to notice things that conform to patterns that we are looking for more than things that do not. It's the reason why, when you learn a new term, you notice the term popping up in books, television shows, conversations, etc., the word is likely not more common than it was before, but your attention is drawn to it now, so you notice it more often. 
Similarly, if you are of the opinion that a particular item is cursed, such as a painting being responsible for fires, then you were likely to notice the cases where a place burned that had the painting more than you noticed the cases where a building burned in the absence of the painting. One is an example of what you were looking for. The other is just the type of fire that, unfortunately, happens every day somewhere in the country. As a result, you are likely to think that cases where a fire started and a painting was present are more common than they actually are. And when a media source makes a point of blaring every example that they can find of the pattern, well, you might find yourself believing something rather outlandish. This, incidentally, is also how a lot of prejudices work. When folks are convinced that people of a certain age are more likely to spend money foolishly, or that people of certain ethnicities are more likely to commit crimes, or any other thing of the sort, they will notice the times when this appears to be true, while ignoring the statistically important cases that don't fit the preconception. And there are often media sources, from newspapers to podcasts to cable channels to websites, that will feed people every example that can be found that fits the prejudice. Sometimes, as the sun did in the case of this painting, even fudging facts or making up false information to support the claim. The point is, someone who is motivated to do so can easily make you see patterns that aren't really there. But we'll discuss the media's role in this a bit later. So the crying boy was not as present during fires as most people seem to think. But does that mean there is no truth to this story? Well, there may be. But it's not spooky. As stated above, prints of the painting were quite popular, and so you would expect them to be in a fair number of buildings in the UK, which means that they would also be in a fair number of buildings that caught fire. So, again, that's the statistics part. We've already gone over that. But then we get to the materials issue. The prints were made on a high-density press board, a material that is very hard to burn. Seriously, there's a video in the blog post from this episode from the BBC showing someone trying to light it on fire with a blowtorch and having very little luck. So, it's a print that is common and is often confused with prints of other paintings, and this print, as well as others in the series, are made of a flame-resistant material. So, yeah, there's a fair chance that a lot of these paintings did survive house fires due to those decidedly mundane factors. Something that is often brought up when these factors are pointed out is that many fire officials, when offered copies of the prints, would refuse to have them in their homes. Supposedly, this shows that the fire officials might publicly give these types of mundane explanations, but that they still thought that the fire was caused by the painting. So, let's get into that a little bit. Let's say that this actually occurred, that fire officials were, in fact, offered copies and refused them. There's a few possibilities. One is that the fire officials simply didn't like the painting. I wouldn't put it up in my home, not because I think it's evil or bad luck, but because I think the prints that I have seen are kitschy and, frankly, just not very good art. So that's one explanation, and one that even the artist who painted the original art would agree with, but I'll get to that a little later. Another possibility comes from the work of psychologist Bruce Hood in the horribly named but nonetheless really interesting book, Super Sense. Hood tried experiments where he would present people with a sweater and tell them that it had belonged to a famous person. He found that if the famous person was generally well-regarded, such as Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood fame, people would be eager to try it on. 
But if the sweater was from a person who was widely considered to be evil, such as Charles Manson, a large number of people would refuse to try it on. The people in question would often be clear that they didn't believe that an article of clothing could carry good or evil on it, but nonetheless, they behaved as if it did. What they knew rationally and what they felt could be different. And it's possible that this is another case of this, where the fire officials knew that the painting was harmless, but after the furor over it had begun, it could still make them uncomfortable for non-rational reasons. And of course, both of these potential explanations assume that the fire officials really were offered prints and really did turn them down. The problem is that the majority of the coverage of the events in the 80s came from a tabloid with more interest in sensationalism than in honest reporting. The story of the cursed crying boy has since been picked up on by numerous writers on numerous clickbait websites which often rely on getting clicks and not necessarily on providing the world with something well-researched. And, of course, the story has spread via many people posting about it on forums across the internet. With all of that being the case, I would be hard-pressed to accept that the stories about fire officials receiving prints of the painting is even true, as there's just far too much space where someone could have inserted a complete invention. So now let's talk about the role of the media, specifically the tabloid The Sun. In 1985, The Sun was owned by Rupert Murdoch. Now, Rupert Murdoch's vast media holdings are an interesting phenomenon in of themselves. They are generally known for having right-wing editorial policies, but this varies from the well-respected Wall Street Journal, which Murdoch purchased in 2007, to other rather unhinged publications that push bizarre conspiracy theories and flat-out false stories. The sun falls at that end of the spectrum. While the right-wing politics of Murdoch's various newspapers, radio, television networks, and websites are often discussed, arguably a far more common issue with them is their tendency towards sensationalism, often stretching facts or even fabricating information in order to make a story seem bigger, scarier, or weirder than it really is. Again, a notable exception is the Wall Street Journal. The Sun is a primary example of this type of, in air quotes, reporting, especially in the mid-1980s. Although it still presented itself as a Labour Party newspaper, i.e. politically left, the early days of Murdoch's ownership of the Sun sought thriving on celebrity scandals both real and invented, such as claiming that Elton John had the larynxes removed from his dogs, or another story in which a famous comedian allegedly ate his friend's hamster, appealing to nationalistic and racist tendencies in many of its stories on European politics, and doing what it could to whip up homophobic moral panic about politicians and the media. It often looked like a less sedate version of the U.S.'s National Enquirer. The entire idea was that sensationalism sells, and those of us living in the modern day continue to see this every time we come across a frightening or infuriating headline on social media. It's usually nonsense, but the urge to know more is still strong. This tendency has powered the less honest publishers for as long as there have been modern newspapers. See also Yellow Journalism. So, The Sun is not exactly a reputable news source, and was arguably even less so in the mid-1980s. It is entirely possible that they heard that there was a spreading folk belief in a cursed painting, or even just heard an offhand comment, and created their first story, 
which then blew up with multiple additional stories culminating in their building a bonfire to burn all of the prints of a painting that they could get a hold of. I have to wonder how hot that bonfire had to get and what types of accelerants they had to use to get it really going, given the trouble that people with a blowtorch had setting the painting on fire. All of this in the name of getting more attention and therefore making more sales. But it didn't stop with the sun. In 2000, a writer named Tom Slimmon resurrected the story in his book Haunted Liverpool. Slimmon states that he had spoken with the head of the Yorkshire Fire Brigade, who refused to comment when directly asked if the painting was evil. Slimmon also introduced the previously mentioned retired school headmaster, George Mallory, who had allegedly found that the painter had been a man named Francho Seville. I have found in researching this episode that people either take Slimmon's account at face value or make a point of mentioning that Slimmon's account is not sourced. That is, he never formally cites where he gets his information, leaving it open to question whether or not he really did find information or if he's just making it all up. But I think that both approaches are the wrong way to look at it. Books like this are produced by various writers and publishers for locations all over the world. They are often part of the tourist kitsch for some locations, or else they are simply part of the fun local color, but they are never meant to be taken seriously as research documents, though some will claim to be that in what usually amount to tongue-in-cheek introductions to the volume. Nor are they intended to be accurate descriptions of locale. They are meant to be fun. Of course, that doesn't stop people from taking them far more seriously than is intended by their authors or publishers. In a story for Skeptical Inquirer magazine, Massimo Palladoro determined the identity of the actual painter. He was, in fact, a Spanish painter named Bruno Amadio. Amadio had died in 1981 at the age of 73, but Palladoro did track down Amadio's neighbor, who filled in some elements. Amadio had been a relatively prolific artist, but his art didn't necessarily sell well. At one point, he painted a few images of crying children, which people bought and reproduced for mass sale. Even though these were his best-selling paintings, he regarded them as somewhat embarrassing, as they were kitschy and, Amadio seemed to think, a bit tacky. So he signed them G. Bragolin, rather than use his real name. Palladoro also wrote that, in his research into the story, he found that George Mallory and Francho Seville both identified in Slimmon's account, were not real people. Though it is unclear to me through the research I've done for this episode whether Francho Seville is wholly fabricated or yet another pseudonym used by Amadio. So, take a likely statistical matter that prints of the paintings and those similar to them were abnormally common to begin with, accompanied by the prints being hard to burn, Add in those intentionally misleading stories by a tabloid paper that has had a rather large number of legal findings against it for false reporting against celebrities and politicians, channel all that into a local book intended to celebrate spooky lore, and you have the makings for an urban legend that many people readily buy into. Okay, that's where the story comes from. But why did this story stick around, and why is it still shared by people to this day, including those who think of themselves as more serious paranormal researchers? Well, I think that the first element may be the accessibility of it. Journalist and folklorist Gail Nina Anderson has suggested that the paintings were cheap and easy to find, meaning that many people knew where one was, and anyone who wished could get their hands on one, which allowed anyone to engage in ostention, that is, 
participating in the narrative in the real world by observing or even owning one of the prints. Being able to entangle yourself in the story, or even knowing that you easily could if you felt so inclined, is likely to keep an urban legend going. So, ease of participation is likely a big part of the ongoing popularity of this story. Another element is, I think, the juxtaposition between danger and a common household item. This feeds a lot of sensationalistic journalism regarding the exaggerated dangers of household appliances or other items. Similarly, there are many stories in circulation about household objects that can be used as drugs, most of which won't get you high and many of which will poison you if you try. These stories work on the same principle. The notion that there is a hidden menace lurking in your home can be both frightening and titillating. There is one last matter that I think is worth discussing. The story often given about Don Benio, the orphan boy and arsonist who was allegedly the model for the crying boy painting, at least in the versions of the story where there is only one painting. In episode 18, I discussed Himuro Mansion, an allegedly haunted house in Japan. You might recall that the story didn't seem to be Japanese in origin, but rather was an American story about Japan that sprung up around a video game popular in the U.S. I think that something very similar is happening here. This tale of Don Benio and his attacks from beyond the grave are a British urban legend about Spain. Let's start with the child's name, Don Benio. It doesn't make any sense from a Spanish point of view. While English speakers are accustomed to Don being short for names like Donald, in Spanish, Don is an honorific, a term that sits before the name of a prominent individual who has earned it. It can be used in the place of sir, as in the honorific used for knights in the British system. For example, Don Quixote could be translated into Sir Quixote. But it is also used more broadly for other prominent figures. A poor orphan child would not have the title of Don. It is possible that the boy would have been named Donald, which could conceivably be shortened to Don, but given that the word Don does have a specific meaning in Spanish, and that Donald is not a particularly popular name in Spanish-speaking countries, being derived from British Celtic, it is unlikely that a boy who would have been called Don existed. So that's our first clue that this story does not originate in Spain. The story also treats Spain as this rural place where village priests advise kindly artists about the dangers of orphans with arsonist tendencies. Now, there's nothing specifically wrong with this. Spain does have villages that do have priests. Spain does have artists. And Spain does have orphans, many of whom are, no doubt, troubled. And, as the Franco regime spanned into the 1970s and would have encompassed the time frame during which the Crying Boy painting was first produced, the dictatorial rule meant that Spain was in some ways regressive. But, at the same time, the feel of the story seems to bear more resemblance to a Hammer Horror film's ideas of rural Europe in the 18th and 19th century than a 20th century industrial country, which is a better characterization of Spain. Examining British popular culture of the 1970s and 80s, Spain and people from Spain were often treated as backwards rubes. Think of the character Manuel from Faulty Towers, for example. Hell, even as late as 2010, I was buying train tickets in London and saw posters advertising travel to Spain portraying 
backwards people speaking broken English that, had they been produced about Mexico and hung in the U.S., even some of the more racist people I know would have found it rather off-putting. And this particular story seems to play into a less comedic version of that tendency, with the Spanish town being this weird rural backward place where the orphans run wild because everyone is afraid of them due to cryptic warnings from the priest. Britain is, of course, not the only place where these types of stereotypes persist. American pop culture also has a number of examples. But this story originated in Britain, so we have to look at their hang-ups. And, of course, this also raises the idea that the painting being Spanish in origin might make it seem more dangerous, as if you are importing some of that backwardsness into your sensible middle-class home. Again, the seemingly innocuous object becomes the source of danger. But this danger is cultural rather than physical. So, I believe that the story of Don Benillo and the cursed painting of him is a purely British invention based on stereotypes of Spain and a misunderstanding of how Spanish names are constructed. It was overlaid into an existing urban legend about a cursed painting, which was, in turn, based on a media panic from the mid-1980s sparked by tabloids trying to sell more papers than their competitors, regardless of how insane the story may be. And that is, to my mind, fascinating. We have a piece of folklore that persists to this day and has long outlived its rather dubious origins to become a bona fide fixture of the paranormal landscape. Its dubious origins do not change the fact that it is a lasting and important element of modern-day supernatural beliefs. Add to that the fact that many people who take their paranormal lore quite seriously continue to share the story as either fact or at least a possible truth, and I think that this story has a long life in it yet. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!